Our scripture reading is taken from the Old Testament. Last week we were looking at, uh, we've been looking at some characters in the Old Testament and seeking to tie doctrine, which is teaching, uh, into the lives of people. That's the only doctrine that's any good anyway. It's uh, when it's lived out. And so today we come to a doctrine that is going to teach us about salvation. Now Naaman, this is chapter 5 of 2 Kings, verse 1. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, that he would cure him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the little girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And he departed, and he took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, ten changes of clothes. And he brought a letter to the king of Israel, saying, quote, And now, as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent my servant Naaman to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And it came about when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending me word to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now, see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. And it happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king and said, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was furious, and he went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abina and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in these and be clean? And so he turned and went away in a rage. Then his servants came near, and they spoke to him. And they said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, Wash? and be clean. And so he went and dipped himself 
seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Amen. May God bless to us this portion of the reading of his word. Let us pray. And now, God, our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the gracious gifts which Thou hast tendered unto us. We bless You for the gift of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ and for the privilege we have of assembly and of reading and hearing Your Word and of having the Holy Spirit impress upon our minds and hearts some word of truth for which we have been especially appointed to come here today. Help us not to go away without that blessing. And Father, we pray that you will take the gifts which we bring and superintend their use to the end that they may bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ. And now make the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts to be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Those who study the art of writing are always fascinated with an account such as you have heard in the 14 verses of the 5th chapter of, of 2 Kings. For just in a very few strokes, the writer is able to put before us a remarkable picture. And he shows us so much about human nature that has not changed even until this very day in which we live. And there are lessons here that we may learn too. But there is one lesson that we often forget when we look at the account of Naaman and uh, what happened to him. We forget that there are two lepers in this story, which I will continue reading in just a moment. We forget that there is a man who starts out in this story as a leper and ends up being cleansed by obedience. And he represents an unbeliever who comes to a belief in Jesus Christ. And then we see in contrast to him an understudy of the prophet Elisha himself, whose name is Gehazi. And Gehazi is a, a person who is supposed to be a believer. And yet he allows the sin of avarice and money to get to him in such a way that his heart is turned from God, and he winds up a leper and forever an example to us to avoid. And so let's look first at this man, Naaman. Naaman is a captain. He is a high-ranking official. He is great in the eyes of his master, the king. There is an old legend in the Old Testament from Old Testament scholars and Hebraists that uh, Naaman was the one who shot the arrow that went at a venture and hit Ahab and killed him, uh, who was one of the great enemies of the people of God. We do know that he was respected and that the Lord had given him victory after victory, and he had honor after honor heaped upon him, that he was valiant and of great courage. 
And uh, there was remarkable displays everywhere he went, people who went before him, people who followed after him. I can remember years and years ago a very thrilling experience I had of uh, going to Vietnam and accompanying General Westmoreland on an inspection tour. It was at a time when we had almost 600,000 troops in Vietnam. And General Westmoreland was the commander-in-chief of all of the military forces in Vietnam. And I can still remember uh, riding in his airplane and on the, on the chair that he sat in, there were four white stars, for the four stars of the general. And I can remember his aide, who was a captain who assisted him every place we got. And when we came to one place and we stepped out of his airplane, he simply held his arms out like this and the man belted his uh, a pistol or belt around his waist. And I noticed how people popped to and how they looked out from the sides of building and how everyone wanted to catch a glimpse of this mighty general as he passed by. Well, you can imagine something of the great honor that had come to Naaman. And yet with all of these honors, there was not a private in all of the army of Syria that would have traded places with him. Because he was a doomed man, he had leprosy. And leprosy in biblical times was a horror of horror. It was looked upon as some incredible touch of God himself. And it was in the Bible a type of sin in the Old Testament. And to be a leper was a terrible thing. I can remember visiting leper colonies in uh, Vietnam and in Thailand. I can remember visiting leper colonies in Africa and in India. And those were heart-wrenching experiences for me even to this day. And yet at this time, in this terrible situation, we begin to see unfold this remarkable story. Now Naaman, the captain of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master, highly respected because the Lord had given him victory. He was also a great and valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And here we see the picture of a little child whom God is going to use as the messenger to bring to her mistress how her husband might be cured of this living death which he had to go through. For this little tiny girl witnesses to her faith in the true and living God by saying to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet, that is Elisha. And Elisha is the one who always does the homely, calm type miracles. Elisha, the prophet who is in Samaria, that he would cure him of his leprosy. And Naaman went out and told his master and said, Thus and thus spoke the little girl. And so the king of Syria, following the rules of diplomacy such as we see on television even in this past week, he writes a letter. Go now and I will send a letter of the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothes. 
Now, that's one of the things that an unbeliever thinks, that he can buy the grace of God, that he can work his way to heaven. And so he takes with him this considerable amount of treasure, and he goes to the king of Israel and takes a letter from his king. And the king of Israel is horrified when he reads the letter. And these are the contents. And now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you that you may cure him of his leprosy. And look how the response comes. You can imagine the Knesset meeting and having such a thing read. And it came about when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and he said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now, he is seeking a quarrel against me. He's using this as an excuse to enter into a war. And it happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king. I love Elisha. He's not impressed with celebrities and dignitaries a bit. He, he sent word to the king. And he said, why have you torn your garment, which is a, a mark of sorrow and distress? Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. And so Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. It must have been a little hovel of a cabin-like hut that Elisha lived in. And here comes this great general with his retinue of servants and his entourage of attending officers and with his treasures that he is going to heap upon this little prophet, Elisha, in his humble abode. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Now note what Elisha does. He doesn't come outside and fall down and paw and scrape at the great man who has come to his door. Elisha sent a messenger to him. He sent out one of his servants and said, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times. Seven times. And your flesh shall be restored to you and you shall be clean." Well, now, first of all, this man thought that his riches were going to impress Elisha. But no real man of God is going to allow riches to get that far along with him. It's quite a talent to make money. But it's not that big. And it certainly doesn't impress God. I copied a little thing out of um, a play called The Miser. Uh, by Henry Fielding, in which he said, Sir, money, money is the most charming of all things. Money which will say more in one moment than the most eloquent lover can say in years.
Perhaps you will say a man is not young. I answer, he is rich. Perhaps you will say he is not genteel, he is not handsome, he is not witty, he is not brave, good-humored. But he is rich, 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 rich. And that one word contradicts everything else you can say against him. But it doesn't always work that way. Because Elisha is singularly unimpressed by this great trove of treasures which are brought to the door of his hovel by this great commanding general. And he doesn't even come out. He simply sends instructions. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be clean. And notice what happens. Naaman was furious. This happens in the church today. Naaman was furious. And he went away and said, Behold, I thought. He had his own idea about how God ought to do things. I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. He expected some dramatic display, but that didn't happen. And then he shouts out, Are not Abina and Farfar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And he went away in a rage. We have a peculiarly interesting colloquial expression in American English that someone got mad. It literally means he took leave of his senses. He was so angry. And this is what happened here. He got mad. He was like a madman. He was out of his mind with rage. But thank God he had some wonderful servants. And it's interesting the part that servants and the little girl, the humble people, play in the life of this man who has leprosy. Then his servants came near. They'd stayed their distance while he was in a rage. And they spoke to him, and they must have spoken gently. One of his sensible servants that he knew was often right, perhaps, and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then, when he says to you, Wash and be clean. And so they reasoned with him. And so Naaman goes and he dips himself in the Jordan River. He dips himself one time. He dips himself two times. He dips himself three times. All Presbyterians would have quit by then. He dips himself four times and then he says, I knew nothing would happen. Look at me. Four times. He's making a fool out of me. That's what he's doing. He wants me to come down to this dirty little ditch and dip in it seven times because they have this superstition about the number seven. And they say, oh, my master, he said seven times. You've only dipped four times. So he dips five, six. He said, nothing's happened. They said, Master, he said, seven, seven, seven. He dips the seventh time 
and he comes up from the water and miraculously, by the power of God, his loathsome disease is cleansed and his skin is as fresh as a baby's skin. What a marvelous thing takes place when we are obedient to God. The call of faith is a call to obey. There is one right thing to do. And that's the thing that we must remember and keep in our minds and learn and learn and learn and learn and learn. The Lord wants us to obey him. There is that in the gospel, wrote James Denny, who is, I think, the greatest of all the Scottish theologians. There is that in the gospel with which no one is allowed to argue. All we can do is to believe in the sense of what we are told to believe or to disbelieve. We are to give it our life and the final reality to which everything else must give way, or we are to refuse our life. Many people are not clear about this. They would like to talk the Word of God over. It raises questions in their minds that they would like to discuss. It has aspects of interest and of difficulty which call for further consideration, on and on. Perhaps there are some who confusedly shield themselves against the responsibilities of faith and unbelief by such thoughts. All that such thoughts prove, however, is that those who cherish them have never yet realized that what you are dealing with in the gospel is God. When God speaks in Christ, he reveals his gracious will without qualification. And without qualification, we have to believe it or refuse it. And so decide once and for all the controversy between ourselves and God. God has not come into the world in Christ. Christ has not been nailed upon a cross bearing the sin of the world to be talked about, but to become the supreme reality in the life of men or to be excluded from that place. To believe is to fall in unconditionally with the purposes of God. Now that's a great statement. And that's what this proud Syrian had to understand. And when he did and obeyed, he was cleansed. And that has come forever to us as an example and a type of belief and salvation by faith and grace alone. Jesus, by the way, used this as an illustration in his sermon in the synagogue in Capernaum. And it angered the congregation very much that he should have pointed it out. Well, this man is healed. And when he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, Behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant. But now look what Elisha said. As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. 
And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And Naaman said, If not, please let your servant or at, le at least be given two mules loaden of earth two mules load of earth for your servant, will no more offer burnt offerings, nor will he sacrifice to other gods but to the Lord. He wanted to take some of the land from there by that Jordan back with him to his land so that he could pray to the true and the living God. He wanted to bow on and pray on that soil. And Elisha said to him, Go in peace. And he departed from him some distance. Now, this would be wonderful if this is the place the story ended, but it's not. But Gehazi, the understudy of Elisha, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, Behold, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian. He is not receiving from his hands what he brought. As the Lord lives, and that's almost a profanity, there are people who are too light with the use of the name of the Lord. I will run after him and take something from him. And so Gehazi pursued Naaman. And when Naaman saw one running after him, he came down from the chariot to meet him. And he asked the question, is all well? He thought maybe something had happened to Elisha. And the servant said, all is well. My master has sent me. That's lie number one, as has been pointed out, saying, Behold now two young men of the sons of the prophets. Elisha conducted a school for the prophets, a sort of seminary. Two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. That's a lie. That's a lie. Another lie. And Naaman said, be pleased to take two talents. And he urged him and bound the two talents of silver in bags and the two changes of clothes and gave them to him. And when he went and came to the hill, he took them from there and put them in his own house. That is, uh, Gehazi, the servant, had stolen these things. He had lied about it and he had taken this money. That's the thing that missionaries learn. They don't take money from the people that they go and serve. They want them to become believers in Christ and to feel that there is a disinterestedness on their part, that what they are doing, they're doing for the love of Christ and not to get something in return. And then he said to him, Did not my, uh, then Elisha speaks to Gehazi, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. You see, he lies again. And then he said to him, did not my heart go with you? He knows the character of this understudy. Did not my heart go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? And then he says a very interesting thing. Is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes and olive yards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? We get these people always pounding away on the television telling you that if you get right with God, your pocketbook is going to be running over. That if you get right with the Lord, you're going to be a great and famous person. That if you get right with the Lord, this and that is going to happen. That's not the message here. Elisha 
Therefore, says to the man, the leprosy of Naaman shall cleave to you. And the words that were carved on Gehazi's tombstone are quaint old words. A leper. A leper as white as snow. Because he had allowed the love of money to be the big thing to pull him away from God. What does Jesus Christ mean to you? Do you love him with all your heart? Just him? And have you trusted in him for simple faith? The Christian faith should not be preached for its emotional value to lull you in your fears and to comfort you in your losses. As if it were like going through a cafeteria of religions and you simply pick out this and that of what you want. The Lord Jesus Christ demands that we give our lives over completely to him. He demands that we give everything to him. And when I think of leprosy and those whom I have seen with that disease, my mind goes back to something that happened years and years ago and with it I close. I remember listening one night to a radio program that used to be called Cavalcade of America. It was sponsored by the DuPont Company. I listened to a dramatization of a part of a book that I later got and read called They Walk Alone. And in the radio presentation of it, there was a young man who had been in the Spanish-American War. He came back and went to Yale University where he distinguished himself he had gotten into a fine business and was engaged to be married. And then in the town where he lived, a fire occurred. And a livery stable was on fire and there were horses there and he had gone with other people to help get the horses out of the, the stables. He was dreaming of the future and of all that he would do, but he had gotten burned that night. And when he had gotten home and had changed clothes and was, taking a, uh, and was taking a shower to change clothes, he noticed that one of his arms, which had been burned terribly, had no feeling in it. There was a white blotch there, but there was no feeling. He was bright enough to know that this meant that something was wrong with the nerve endings there. And so he went to see a distinguished doctor in his town, and the physician looked at this brilliant and gifted young man. And the physician's face turned white and he trembled. And he went out of the room and brought another doctor back into the room with him. And asked him to look also at this blotch. And then they had to tell their distinguished friend with tears in their eyes as physicians that he had leprosy. He went out of the doctor's office and went home to his room and wrote a letter to the one to whom he was engaged, breaking off the engagement but not telling her what was wrong with him. And then he made his way out of the city with a pistol and he went to a riverbank 
and he walked down to a place where he fully intended to blow his brains out. And there were some hobos there, some people who catch rides on trains. And they had had a little camp under a trestle. And they had made a fire and were cooking some, some kind of thing on the fire, some stew. And there was an old man amongst the hobos who was a tramp called Salvation. They called him that because he was a preacher and he was preaching away to the other hobos. This man was back in the bushes listening to these tramps and he heard that hobo shout out, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. And whosoever shall keep his life shall lose it. And then he realized that he was going to die anyway. And he thought, I might as well really get serious with Christ. And I'll lose my life in his service. And he did. And he went out to an island in the Pacific where he sought to serve Christ. And God used him to be an instrument of his mercy and love to people who suffered until his own death came. Well, what does this tell us? It tells us what we were singing a moment ago. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It tells us that he has made an oath and a covenant with his blood, and that if we lose our lives in him, then we have found them again, and we can live a new life, a life lived out to his glory. And if you've never allowed him to become Lord of your life, you can give as much of yourself as you know how to give to as much of him as you understand, and he will take you right there. And from that point forward, you can start a new life. We will omit the closing. Oh God, our Father, we pray to Thee that those in this congregation this morning who have witnessed the faith of others who have come to You and those who have heard the account of the message of those from the Old Testament who teach us by examples of obedience and by examples of disobedience to take our eyes off the world and put them on to Jesus Christ. Help us to lose our lives, to find them again in Him. And if some of us have allowed our love for Jesus to grow cold and to become interested in things, 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 then stop that and cause us to love him more and to serve him better. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and guide, be and abide with us all, now and forevermore.